Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. So if you have a copy of the Bible, please open it up to Luke chapter 15. If it's digital, you can tap your way there. We don't discriminate. We just want you to be in the Word, seeing where we're saying and, and uh, what we're saying and where it comes from. If you don't have a scripture or a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll put those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a Bible and a readable English translation so that you can be studying what God has said to you. Luke chapter 15. Now, the series we're in is called Leap for Joy. I don't know how often you guys just leap for joy. When I was in college, I was an intern at a church. I was by myself. And I was really happy. Gosh, I was happy. Uh, interning sounds like a lot, and it can be. Uh, but it also is, can be really joyful. And I was so happy, I did a cartwheel by myself. Uh, badly. Uh, I, I broke a metatarsal in my foot, and I had to have surgery. <laughs> and they had to put a screw in my fifth metatarsal in my right foot. Uh, why? Because I did a cartwheel by myself. Uh, <laughs> Because of joy. So, you know, it can be dangerous leaping for joy. But I do hope that we all together feel some of the desire for what the Lord has promised his people. I, I don't know what your conception of Christianity is. If it's like hermit in the desert, kind of meditative, monkish, and it's very quiet. Or if it's like missionary on the field, and it's like threadbare and hard. But the picture we get in scripture is of incredible Deep joy. Chesterton talks about the Buddhist is, is painted as having their eyes closed in some sort of inner peace. But the, paint, the saint of Christianity is always painted with his eyes wide open. And that's because we see something. And that's something that we see should elicit some kind of response. It should give you some kind of joke. And if you've listened to our sermons that we've done so far on this series on joy... Um, I just kind of went back, and unfortunately, we talked about hell and the devil, like a lot for some reason, and I'm not exactly sure how that all comes out. It's just we talk about Luke, and Jesus talks about those things. But if you're going to talk about joy, doesn't Jesus ever talk about heaven? And actually, he does. God, uh, through Christ, in the scriptures, says quite a bit about heaven. It says in Matthew, in the Beatitudes, that heaven is a place of great reward. Now, you can kind of process through what that looks like and what that means. I think about that a lot, kind of in tandem with the parable I read this week about the paying of workers who start early in the day and start very late in the day, and they all get the same pay. And what, what does it mean, the reward in heaven? I don't know. Stuff to think about, stuff to look at. There's probably some great books out there we could study. But it says in Matthew, Jesus says that heaven is a place of great reward. It says again in Matthew... That heaven is a place where neither moth, nor thief, nor rust destroy. Now, if you're like me, you just sort of like take that in and go, yes, and then keep moving. But if you process it for a second, it says moth will not destroy. And, and if you're just really trying to get joy out of that, I don't know. I'm not really worried about moths. I mean, I appreciate that in heaven, but we have like nets or whatever. Like, I don't know. Moths are not a big part of my world. I mean, my clothes are not great, but they're not moth-eaten. Uh, then you get to the thieves part. Where I live in Cottonwood Heights, our house is between two different police stations. 
I don't know, you get ring doorbells, like thieves don't seem like they're that big uh, of a problem. But when he talks about rust, that's where I think there's some traction. Because when he says that things don't rust in heaven, part of what he's alluding to is the fact that the fall never happened in heaven. It's a place where things don't fall apart. Heaven is a place of of perfection and specifically a place without what the physics people call entropy. The idea that things are going to move from order to disorder, that chaos is going to eat everything up. I'm pretty sure that's a scientific accurately (laughs) description of entropy. I don't really know. I tried to read it and there was math and it's like, ah, we'll just go with like the headline here. Yeah, things are falling apart. If you leave an apple alone, it rots. If you leave a house alone, it falls apart. When you say an abandoned house, people don't usually go, ooh. Abandoned house means scary house. It doesn't mean warm, inviting house. If we leave you alone, oh, heavens, right? Like the wheels fall off pretty quick. If you are not actively fighting, what do you look like? Oh, mama, right? Like, I don't even just mean like weight and stuff. If you don't wake up in the morning and work on what you see in the mirror... Other people notice, don't they? You have to fight for things to look how you want them to look. The wheels are falling off all the time, but not in heaven. Heaven is a place without the brokenness. Now, that's beautiful. It's it's a description of life without the negative. But what is the positive? Well, heaven is the perfect place. Allow yourself to imagine this. Try to think about what would be the perfect version of the things that you already love here. What would be the perfect sandwich? What would be the perfect joke? What would be the perfect back scratch or the perfect song? Imagine, I I did this, and I don't know, this this is just what came into my head, but imagine working, you walking a perfect walk down a perfect road, giving a perfect high five to a perfect friend on a perfect day in perfect health. What would that be? And then you also have to leave little dot, dot, dots on every little corner of your imagination as you walk through heaven. Because, of course, we just don't understand all of the perfection and joy that God would give to us when we got to that place. We, we have something absolutely stunning with this picture of heaven. There is no brokenness at all. Revelation 21 says it this way. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And if you read through the whole of the New Testament or all of Scripture and you go, well, there's really not a lot of descriptions of heaven. Can I tell you why? It's because, and it tips us off here in the beginning of verse 4. The reason why we don't get a lot of like real meaty descriptions of the experience of heaven is because the headline of heaven we do get a ton about in Scripture. And it's that very beginning part is that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. What's the headline of heaven? Is it the food situation or the rust situation? No, the headline of heaven is that he is there. That he is there to be with you. If you look at another place where Jesus talks about heaven, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What is he saying? 
Process this for a moment. He's not just saying there's a room. He's saying you have a room in the Father's house. He's going to prepare a place for you in this house. But it's not just a house. He's not a realtor here. He's not telling you that there's some properties that you'll be interested in, in the heavenlies. He's saying that God has a house. And in God's house, you have a room. How many rooms do you have? I know maybe you have a house and so technically they're all your room. But there's also one that's like your room. How many different rooms do you have beyond that? Maybe one at your parents' house, but like probably they turned it into like mom's Pilates studio or like (laughs) your dad does trains or something. And so, yeah, you could stay in there, but you don't want to do that. So it's like it's your room, but it's not your room anymore. Why do you only have one room? Because there's only so many relationships that you have with somebody that are so deep and so defining that for that relationship, of course, where they are, you will be also. So if they're going to have a house, they're definitely going to have to have a room for you because where they are, you're going to be also. In our house, our kids have a room. Why? Because where we are, they're going to be also. What is Jesus communicating here? He's not just telling you about your living situation. He's describing his relationship with you. He's describing what's so great about heaven. When you think about getting married, you don't think, and then we'll be able to get a cool house. Because when you get married, you usually can't afford a house. If the numbers are right, all the people that are about to get married will never own a home, right? Like things are just getting away from us. It's not about where you're going to live. It's about who you're going to live with. I want to make that point really heavy because I want you to see what Jesus is describing when he talks about heaven. He's not just talking about a place that's perfect. He's talking about a place about a place where he is and a place where you're with him. Heaven sounds awesome. But there is something missing. And it's what Luke 15 describes in detail and that's what I want us to dive into and really understand well. And as you get into Luke 15, uh, I just want to affirm this chapter. Now, of course, all Scripture is God-breathed. I don't want to take anything away from any of Scripture. But if you feel a little lost in Bible... Luke 15 is a great place to come back and see again. A guy named J.C. Ryle said, There is probably no chapter of the Bible that has done greater good to the souls of men. And I got to say, he's probably right. Look at Luke 15. We're going to start in verse 1. We're not going all the way through, but we're going to at least read this first part. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them, I think specifically telling the Pharisees and the scribes, this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Listen, we've been talking about the joy that God has for us. But what this verse is talking about is the joy that's in heaven. What gives heaven joy? 
And when he's saying that, I want to be really careful here because there is this idea that we want to say the way Scripture does, that heaven has a lack, that there's something missing. By that, I don't mean that, that, that it's imperfect in any way. But Scripture indicates that the Lord from heaven wanted something. There's a guy named Matt Smethurst who helps to guard us a little bit here because he does say, no, 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 God is happy. Happier than the happiest person you've ever known. Even before there was time, he was happy. Do you imagine God is happy? Infinitely happy within a triangle of love, Father, Son, and Spirit. For all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, delighted to share the joy of divinity with one another. So I'm going to be really careful. I am not saying that God is in need, but I am saying what I think Scripture is clear about. That God from heaven saw something he wanted and he went after it. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus, being God, when he comes to earth, he, he's actually coming for something. It says in Hebrews 12, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, we like that word, that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was something about which the father was so concerned that Christ comes and is not only alive, not only lives, not only leaves heaven, but goes down to death, even death on a cross, despising the shame of that experience. For what? What did he have that he did not, uh, what did he not have that, that he needed, that he came to earth to retrieve? Well, what he didn't have was us. You want joy. What he didn't have, what he desired is the lost. He, he came to collect you. When we say he went to the cross, we mean that he went to drink hell itself that he might rescue you. I don't know how to continue to say that well enough, but I want you to go to some of the suffering of Christ and some of the shame of Christ in order to allow that sentence to grow in size in your mind. If we say Jesus went to the cross for you, that means that when Jesus in the garden sweat blood, right before he goes to be arrested, knowing all, he knows that his time has come. And he prays to the Father. And he has this desperate session of, of interceding for himself with the Father. And in this garden, so great is the stress of what he knows he's about to experience that the Lord sweat. Instead of just sweat, he actually sweat blood. And why did he sweat blood? Because he knew what he wanted and he knew what it cost. At any point in this experience, we know that he could command legions of angels... And you think angels, harps. No, warriors of heaven were in the legion numbers ready at his beck and call to wipe Rome and Jerusalem off the face of the planet. At any point, even from the cross, he could opt out. But he continued and he actually tasted not merely the physical agony of crucifixion, but the spiritual death of God's punishment for sin, for hour after hour after hour. Why? 
This is a long quote, but I think it's worth it. The guy named Greg Morse compared what Jesus did here to that of a, a deep sea diver and not with all the equipment. Think like warm oceans, deep sea divers that are just poor people that know that if they get the pearls, they can sort of work their way up. So they have to go down and they kill themselves going down, down, down. He says, through friendless deeps and misery unmeasured, see this son of sorrows swim boldly along the bottom. Omnipotent wrath crushing him. See him feel upon the seabed. Ah, one lost pearl. A little further, the second. Further still, the third. As the pressure increases beyond bearing, he cries, I thirst yet presses on. Though heaven's troops would stand at his beck and call, he will have his prize, his people. One by one, under heat and wrath-shattering contemplation, he reaches out, Christian, for you, holds you, claims you as his own. Angels are stunned into silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries. After six excruciating hours, he collects his last pearl and shouts victoriously, it is finished. He does this. Do you, do you see what the Gospels describe? He does this because he loves you. And if you're honest with yourself, have you believed that? I mean, you read something like this, and I, I, I have moments of worship, I have flashes of worship, but I also have things that slow me down here. And Jesus is smart enough. He anticipates these things, and he tells this longer parable at the end of 15 to kind of answer it. Because if I'm honest, when I read something like that, obviously I get a little emotional. I'm also standing before you. But, but when I'm by myself, when I need to, to receive the blessing of the gospel, what slows me down? Well, I can think about this kind of love, but I can also think what I always think, which is, well, yeah, Jesus loves, but not me. I tell you about a love like that. Is there a possibility that you get a little whisper from the outside or a little whisper from the inside that says, but not you? You've gone too far. That story describes collecting pearls, and I'm no pearl. I'm no prize. Well, there's two other stories, and they try to hammer home the truth of God's love. Luke's already told us. Jesus has told us this story because the Pharisees are upset that Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. The point of those two sort of categories, tax collector and sinner, is to say those far from God. And whether it's our pride or whether it's something else, there's a part of us that says, well, I understand that they're talking about people that have sinned, but not sinned like I've sinned. A couple, uh, maybe it was last year, maybe around Easter, we, we went through and did a whole series on this parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And we bought a lot of this book called Prodigal God because we thought it was really, really helpful and we still think that. We would love for you to get it and read it. But it walks through what is the third parable in this chapter. We have the story of the sheep that I read to you. There's a similar, very short story about a woman who lost a coin and she carefully lights a candle and carefully sweeps the whole house until she finds that lost coin. And then there's the story of a father with two sons. 
And one of the sons tells his dad that he wants his inheritance early, that he rejects the family, that he's going to go and make his own way, but not like invest. He's going to go and like enjoy himself. So that's what he does. He takes the money and he squanders his father's money on reckless living, it says. Now, as we were describing that, we actually came up this week. The thing we're doing for our kids right now is like a devotional is, is about the names of God. One of the names of God was talking about him as our savior. And you're like, oh, yeah, duh. Well, okay, but it's one of the names. It's in there. We're working through it. And the story that the person told was this story. And one of my elementary age daughters asked me, what did he spend the money on? Because you say reckless living. Like, what, what does that mean? Well, the older brother later in the parable confirms that the younger brother was spending that money on prostitutes. I mean, Rachel and I, when, when she asked us that, looked at each other, because how do you describe to your kid? There's like a funny thing. How do you avoid talking about sex? But there's a reality thing, too, where you realize when you look into the face of like an innocent, that you can't describe to them what kind of things people get up to. What kind of things guys try to get women to do? What kind of things women give themselves to? This guy, he squandered himself. He squandered his dad's money. Not just in pleasure, but he, he squandered himself by going to the furthest place from his dad. He, he humiliates his dad personally, being a son who, who takes his dad's name and his dad's money and leaving, but he also humiliates his dad by himself being the likeness of his father. It's a son. A son looks like the dad. A son carries the name of the dad. And taking that image, he debases it, rubbing it in the filth that he can find in this distant place. He does it, and he continues to do it, until the money runs out. Now, as you're reading this, I hope that there's some part of your brain that starts to, to see some of the opposites. Because in this one case, we have this son in the parable who stays in the lowest form of debasement until the money runs out completely. And what I've already described to you is that of the son, the son, capital S, Jesus, who stays on the cross until the wrath of God is poured out completely. Why do those things go together? Well, because that's what the holy love of God requires if he's going to pay for the worst of sin. That's what God has always said that he would do. Centuries before Jesus in Isaiah, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God sees and knows exactly what you've done. Please don't try to high road God here. That's what we do in our pride. We say, you, you say that God loves me, but he can't, he can't love me. And this stuff goes down really deep because the stuff we do that debases us, it affects us down really deep. God doesn't want me. Yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does. That's the point of this story. That's why it's told three times in a row. Yes, he does. He wants you. He loves you. It says in Isaiah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see 
and be satisfied. What does that mean? Well, he's talking about the son of sorrows that would be crushed. He's talking about Christ who would be crushed and would see what he gained from that sacrifice. You and me, he would see and he would be satisfied. (laughs) Does he not want you? He left heaven to come and seek you. Now, It may be that the love of God kind of falters in your mind because you say, well, he can't love me. If so, I hope that we're answering that question. Yes, he does. But it also may be that the love of God kind of falters in your mind because if you're honest, you say to yourself, seems kind of like overkill. Yeah, Jesus comes from heaven to earth and dies for me. I I don't know that I really need that. Thank you. But you're putting yourself out there pretty far. And and honestly, I feel like we could handle this in other ways. Maybe I could just put a little extra obedience on. You know, maybe I could could try to lead my family a little better. Maybe I could give a little bit more. You know, maybe I'll brush up some of these habits that obviously you're not thrilled about. But, you know, to die for me, Jesus, is it that bad? And honestly, if you remember verse 7, I think that's part of why this whole story is told as well. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What does that mean? Growing up, I always kind of stumbled on that verse. Seems like kind of a shot at like the angels that didn't fall. The idea that you'd be walking through heaven and there would be all these people who didn't really need redemption... And they're kind of on the side. And then there'd be these people who got redeemed and they're like the the highlight of heaven. But that doesn't really make sense. And no, it doesn't really work from the passage. From the passage's perspective, Jesus is telling to the Pharisees and the scribes that he's come to save, to seek and to save the lost. There's another place in scripture that's a lot like this verse where Jesus says, physicians don't come to heal the healthy. They come to heal the sick. And the irony of that is that the Pharisees think they're the healthy, but Jesus knows and the audience knows and all the readers for millennia know that the Pharisees are the ones who are going to put him on the cross. If anybody's sick, the Pharisees are sick. So what is he saying when there's more joy in heaven over one righteous or one sinner that repents than over 99 who need no repentance? Well, he's poking the Pharisees in the same way he did that other time. Well, you think you're righteous? You think you need no repentance? You think you need no grace? Here's what we talked about last week. If you want to ask whether or not you're obedient to God, does your heart long for the Father? I tried to make the case earlier on that we don't get a ton of info. We get info. We don't get a ton of info about the experience of being in heaven, the like details of heaven. Because the headline of heaven is that you'll be with the Lord. So on every page of scripture, when it tells you how good God is, it is describing how good heaven is because that's what heaven is. Heaven is being with the Lord. It's having the desire of your heart to be with the Lord, fully satisfied forever. So let me ask the question. Are you somebody who is externally really impressive? You're super hardworking. You're super faithful to your word. You're somebody who does things that other people consider righteous. But if we scratched, if we got into your heart, do you long for the Father? 
Do you wake up praying and go to sleep praying? Do you spend time in the Word? Not because you're supposed to, because you're hungry. We talked about the temptation of Christ. We talked about how Jesus said that the bread that he needed was the Word of God. Do you open the Scriptures and eat it like bread? If not, hey, by God's grace, he's there. He's ready to love you and forgive you. Go back to the first question. Remember, you're loved by the Lord. I'm not saying you need that righteousness, but I am saying if you think your righteousness is going to impress God, let me ask you that question in particular. Not on the outside, but on the inside. Do you long for the Father? Can you pray what David prayed, where he said, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. What's he saying? That the pleasure of the Father is a thousand times greater than any other pleasure. And to use thousand, he really means infinite. He's saying to be near the Father is better than to have any greatness of his own. Because he'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to be the emperor of anything else. If you've been with us for a second, you know that we talk regularly about how the one great principle of hell is, I am my own. I would rather be the king of a very, very small thing than to be a servant of a very, very great thing. Well, that's not David's heart. He was the king of Israel at its height. And he said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to be a king in anything else. Do you have that heart? The Pharisees didn't. And it meant that they rejected the love of Christ. So let me just ask you again. Do you know this love? Do you know this, this joy? What do you, how do you leap for joy? Well, because you know this joy, and the joy is so electrifying that you just get all jumpy. You do cross, cartwheels. You, you don't know how to do cartwheels, but you do them, and then you consult with a surgeon. But, but you, you do the kinds of things that you do because you're electrified by an emotion that's built on a truth. Hope Church, do you know that joy? And if there's a part of you that's like, absolutely. Then that, even if it doesn't feel like the whole of who you are, even if it feels like it happens a lot less than you would like for it to feel, even if it's just a, a want to want to love Lord like that, then that's the spark. But if there's none of that at all, let me ask you if you really do know the Lord. Let me ask you if, if today, maybe, for the first time, you need to spend some time saying, do, do I really understand the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus Christ? And if not, then today could be the day. Today could be the day where he pulls you up out of the muck, where he grabs that pearl and brings you to himself forever. <laughs> There's no hurdles to jump. Jesus stands and knocks. Will you open the door to him? Now, if you have opened the door to him, then I hope today has helped to facilitate that joy a little bit, helped you to argue back against the enemy when he tells you that you're not worthy of that love or you don't really need that kind of forgiveness. And if so, then let that joy roll over for you into evangelism. Listen, Easter is one month from now. Do you know that? And you all knew that because you're really efficient people who check your calendars all the time. I was a little startled by it, and it's supposed to be like the number one thing in my year. 
Easter is one month from now. And if you're going to invite people to Easter, you're going to open up your text message and you're going to text some people. And some people, the last text you sent them was an invite to Christmas. I don't know if you're like me, but that happens more than I would care to admit. I don't want that to be the case. Well, I've got a month to fix it. Between now and Easter, I can have people into my home and I want you to do that. I want you to cook for the gospel. I want you to cook something, invite people over, feed them, love them, see them. And then after they leave, pray for them and then invite them to Easter. Why? Because I want you to be able to invite them with the fullness of love that is possible in Christ Jesus by serving them and doing exactly what God has called you to do. Don't forget, here is God's heart for sinners. That's what we described in Luke chapter 15. It is God's heart for sinners as he works through Jesus. Don't just receive that, but understand also that seeking the lost should be at the heart of every disciple's activity. I just think one practical thing you can do when it comes to prepping for Easter is just invite people into your home to see them and love them and serve them and then invite them. And if you can only do that twice between now and Easter, then invite a whole bunch of other people and you can maybe even just put in there, hey, I'm sorry I haven't texted you since Christmas, but I really would like to be your friend and love you well. And let's just see. Let's just imagine the joy of being the person who gets to invite somebody else into that love that we're experiencing today. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy that you described for us in Luke chapter 15. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us so thoroughly that you would die for us, that you would seek us, that you would bring us to yourself even when we don't think that we deserve it and we know that we don't. Or, Father, even when we're not sure that we need it. We could be so offensive about this great gift that you've given us, and yet you continue to offer, you continue to appeal, you continue to invite. Lord, this morning, would you please draw somebody here to yourself? As we try to lift you high, Father, will you lift yourself up high before people and call all people to yourself? And Father, will you please make us as your people strategic and sacrificial in trying to offer that same invitation to see other people come to know and be known by you. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.